We're going to journey through the Psalms. As you know, we've been doing that together for awe and wonder. Um, We're going to read a Psalm of Asaph. Um, It's going to be Psalm 50, so I'll give you some time to turn there in your Bibles or click there on your Bible apps. But uh, Asaph is uh, the lead worshiper. He is the worship leader in David's tent. He's the one who David, who we know he's, David is the great worshiper, a man after God's heart. David appointed Asaph and said, you're the guy, you're to lead my worship team, and you're to lead the people in worship around basically in the presence of God before the Ark of the Covenant. So Asaph spent a lot of time in the presence of God. He wrote 12 psalms, and um, this is the first one he ever wrote. We also know that Asaph was a seer. He was um, not necessarily a prophet, but somebody who was prophetic, who heard from God and could speak um, what he heard from God um, and speak it to other people. And he was a prophetic worshiper. And I feel like I identify with Asaph so much because I love prophetic worship. I love to be in the presence of God. And I love to write songs that the church can sing that glorify our king. And so here we come in at Psalm 50. This is his debut. And he says, I'm reading from the NLT. I'm going to read 15 verses, starting in verse 1. The Lord, the mighty one, is God. And he has spoken. He has summoned all of humanity from where the sun rises to where it sets. From Mount Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines in glorious radiance. Our God approaches, but he is not silent. Fire devours everything in his way, and a great storm rages around him. He calls on the heavens above and the earth below to witness the judgment of his people. Bring my faithful people to me, those who made a covenant with me by giving sacrifices. Another translation says, by cutting a covenant with me through blood. In verse 6, then let the heavens proclaim his justice for God himself will be the judge. Interlude. Selah. This is a moment for us to pause. I imagine it's a moment in the song where just the music plays and it gives the reader or the singer an opportunity to reflect on what they just read. And then we move on to verse 7. Oh, my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, O Israel. I am God, your God. And I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. But I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens, for all the animals of the forest are mine. And I own a cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains and all the animals of the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. 
Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. And keep the vows you made to the Most High. And then call on me when you are in trouble. And I will rescue you and give you, and and you will give me glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. Holy, holy, holy. Our Lord, our God the Almighty One, help us to see you tonight. High, high and lifted up. Sovereign. Redirect our thoughts in your presence, Lord Jesus, and speak to our hearts. Awe us by your beauty and your wonder and your majesty. There is none like you. Amen. To be holy means to be separate, to be set apart, to be cut away from altogether different, other than, unique, in a category all by yourself. By this definition, we could say that a number of things are holy. When I was a little girl, I used to go to my aunt's house, and um, she had this one room that was her holy living room. Now, she didn't define it as such, but according to our definition of holy tonight, I'm defining it as such all these years later. The carpet was bright white. It always had perfect vacuum lines in it. No one ever walked in the room. The, the furniture was just so All of the decor was staged like a model home. It had a beautiful, shiny, grand piano that no one ever played. Hello? Hello, piano player? Hello? (laughs) It was set apart from the rest of the house, except for one time a year when we would gather together in our best-dressed selves and come to her house for Christmas dinner. And at Christmas dinner, she would pull out all of the fine china, and we would eat together. And after dinner was over, we would go into the room. And this is the only time I can remember sitting on the furniture, kind of with a little bit of trepidation, like, oh my gosh, I can't, I gotta be careful how I walk in this room. And we would sing Christmas carols together around the piano, And then we would leave, and that room would stay vacant for another 365 days. That room was holy, at least to her it was. My husband, he has holy sneakers. Um, (laughs) He uh, told me today his Air Jordan 11 Concords are his favorite. He says they're the best shoe made ever of all time. Shout out to my husband on the front row. He also talked about his LeBron 8 South Beach. I don't know none of these. I just know that he has a whole bunch of shoes that he has set apart. And to him, they're holy. They're stored in the original box with the original shoe form and the original tissue paper. 
They make their de debut once, maybe twice a year. <laughs> they cannot be worn in bad weather. Today would not be a day they'd be able to be worn. They cannot, it cannot be raining. It cannot be snowing. The wind cannot be blowing. <laughs> he cannot walk on dirt or grass or any other surface with these. It's pavement and carpet and that's it. Definitely, he definitely can't wear them in a place where there's going to be large crowds like a football game or a concert because someone will step on his shoes and he will talk about it for the rest of the evening. When, when they're on his feet, he has to like walk a certain way so the toe doesn't crease. <laughs> Toe creases are a sin in our house. Those shoes are set apart. Maybe a special vehicle that you keep in your garage. I don't have that kind of money, but perhaps you do, where you only drive it when it's 75 and sunny outside. Maybe the money that you're saving for retirement or the friend that you confide in like nobody else. All of these things are set apart and they are separate. But when it comes to the holiness of God, we are talking about a different kind of set-apartness altogether. Let's put God over here and everything else that exists over here, including ourselves and all of the things I've just described. The differences we can observe are vast. Everything else that was made, everything else was made, God was not. Everything else is dependent, God is not. Everything else is contingent, God is not. Everything else is a derivative of something, God is not. Our existence and the existence of everything that we see is totally and completely dependent on him. He depends on no one for anything. And this is merely a scratch and sniff description of his holiness. Here in our text, I'm reading between the lines of this prophetic psalm and I'm filled with wonder as I see the imagery and hear the heart behind Asaph's words. I imagine he saw the attributes of our holy God, too many to name. I see the attributes of our holy God all throughout these 15 verses. There's too many to name. But for our time tonight, I'll pull out three of them. We'll examine them together. The first thing that I think Asaph saw that I definitely saw was God's holy authority. He was transcendent yet imminent, transcendent above all, existing outside of our grasp, our scope, our understanding, the only mighty one, Jehovah, Elohim, the supreme one to all things. He is sovereign and unique and different and incomparable, distinct. His transcendence gives him full authority over all of his creation. And he can summon all of us with one word. He hovers over time and space 
as if heaven were his throne and earth were his footstool. Isaiah 66. He never went to school, but he's all-knowing, omniscient, full of wisdom, all-powerful. He has existed for longer than anyone or anything, yet never grows old because he lives outside of time. He is the ancient of days without becoming ancient. He was then, is now, and forever will be. God is an all-consuming fire. He needs no gas, no wood, no substance to continue burning. Forest trees need, forest fires need trees. And when the trees are gone, the fire is gone. A barbecue needs briquettes. They need pellets. It needs wood. It needs something to keep burning. And when it's gone, the fire is gone. But God is an all-consuming fire. As we see in Exodus 3, when he shows up to, with Moses in the burning bush. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. It needs nothing to continue to burn. Yes, God is transcendent. And at the same time, he's imminent. He's knowable. He's tangible. He's present. He's with us. We can feel him with our senses, taste of his goodness, dwell in his presence. He reveals himself to us our supreme God who knows our innermost sinful thoughts, knows our motivations, knows all of our junk, that God wants us to know him. This God never has a need, yet he wants relationship with sinners like us. This holy authority, living between the two things of transcendence and eminence, it's a thing to marvel at. And I stand back and go, how God? God, by his holy authority, he created us before we could even ask to exist, before we wanted to exist, he created us and he knew us before we were in our mother's womb. He wants to be known by us. He wants relationship with us. Just take a minute and close your eyes in this space and think about that for a minute. Our transcending God who exists all by himself wants to have relationship and be known by humanity who is totally and fully dependent upon him. The next thing that I believe Asaph sees that jumps out to me is God's holy justice. He is just, and at the same time, he's our justifier. <clears throat> A just God requires sinners to be punished. And you would say, God is love. And I would say, yes, he is. But the angels we encounter in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 don't sing love, love, love about our God. They sing holy, holy, holy. They don't sing faithful, 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 though he is. They sing holy, holy, holy. 
He is first and foremost holy. He is unable to dwell with sinners. He hates, yes, loathes sin. If he compromised his justness, he wouldn't be God. Think about that. If God compromised his justness to say, it's okay, I can, ha- I can live with your sin, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be holy. He must uphold his commandments and his laws, and therefore he must punish sin. And there we pause. Because all of us are guilty at some point or another of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Like, my sin isn't that offensive. Like, my little white lies don't really matter that much. Like, what I do with the body that he created doesn't really matter much to him. Like how I choose to treat my friends and my family and my coworkers, it doesn't matter to him. To quote Jackie Hill Perry from her book, Holier Than Thou, which by the way, I would suggest you get it. It's one of my favorites. She says, we find the confidence to accuse God of injustice whenever his gavel falls too hard for our liking because we have a ridiculously low view of sin and an equally mediocre grasp of the holiness of God. It is audacious living to treat God like he's a genie in a bottle. Give me what I ask for. Forgive us and help us is right. Help us, God. Sometimes we treat God like Like he should image us. We We are his image bearers. It's not the other way around. John Piper says it this way. How many wrestle with the apparent injustice that God is lenient with sinners? Indeed, how many Christians wrestle with the fact that our own forgiveness is a threat to the righteousness of God. How many times have we really wrestled with the fact that, you know, my sin is an in, my, my forgiveness of sin is an injustice to you? How many times have I wrestled with this apparent justice that God is lenient with me? Most of the time I'm like, God, you should be more kind to me. God, where are you at? Why aren't you talking? What's your problem? Don't you see me over here? Our justifier stepped out of heaven and into time to save us from his own wrath by taking it upon himself. This is the tension between a just God and one who is our justifier. All of heaven and creation must have marveled at a holy God so just that he would give his son to die to satisfy his own standard for sin. 
He is our justification. This is what it means for him to be the propitiation for our sin. God so loved that he gave his son Jesus the only one sufficient enough to appease God's wrath, the only one pure enough to satisfy God's justice. He is the God of passion and zeal, of fire and glory, of radiance. All nature seems to teem with vigor. Rain and fire, thunder and lightning accompany his every move. He shines the brightest into the darkest hearts and takes his place as our justification for sin. What an amazing God he is. Holy, 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 Lord. God Almighty. The last thing that I draw from this passage is I see that he's a God of a holy standard. He requires surrender over sacrifice. In the kingdom of God, surrender is greater than sacrifice. The standard from and by which everything is made, is God. He is good and there is no other. But God isn't just good. He himself is, in fact, the very standard of good. As Stephen Charnock put it, God is good as he is God, and therefore good by himself and from himself, not by the participation of another. God doesn't need anything. While our existence has a beginning, God has always existed. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. God graciously grants us stewardship of things that he owns. Things like talent, money, spiritual gifts, children, and the list goes on. But this stewardship will always be limited by the time and space that we live in. It's God's. He owns it. And because he lives outside of our time, nothing that he owns can ever expire unless he wills it to do so. So why then would a holy God ever need our sacrifice? He doesn't. In this passage, he's saying, that's nice that you're sacrificing bulls to me. I know that. This is a religious thing. It's nice that you're coming to church. I know, I know that's what you think you're supposed to do. It's cool that, you know, you threw all your music away. It's good that you're not going to the club anymore. <laughs> but I, I own the sacrifice. I own your life. I am your creator. And you think offering me this minuscule thing is something? I own cattle on a thousand hills. All the, everything is mine. It's like when you give your child money to buy you a gift and they give you the gift and you could have bought it yourself. You, 
Our holy God is bringing us up to his standard tonight for what his idea of sacrifice is. And at the end of the day, it's all about our surrender, all about our obedience. It's all about our gratitude, our thankfulness. That's what moves him. It's not coming to church. It's not throwing away your music. It's not stopping smoking. All of those things are good. But what moves the heart of God is your total and complete surrender to his will for your life. Your total and complete gratitude and thankfulness to him. Your obedience. This is what moves the heart of our God. And I think it so moves him because these things, gratitude, thankfulness, obedience, they're things that God can't choose for us. They're things we have to choose for ourselves. The sacrifice of surrender and thanksgiving to God is so beautiful. Because by default, it acknowledges God's holy, holy, holiness in our lives. What an amazing picture when our holy God accepts our thanksgiving. When he's moved by it. When he looks over the side of his throne down to 4600 Brookville Corporate Drive. When he opens the heavens and says... That heart of thankfulness is what I'm looking for. That's the thing that moves me. When we can join in the angels and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What do you see tonight? What do you see? What do you see of God? What do you see of yourself? What do you make of all of this? For me, I see a God who made a decision to come for me in my worst, worst, worst state and to justify me by his blood, and to cut covenant with me through Jesus, and to make a way for me to live in his presence. I see a God who I'm fully and totally and completely dependent upon. Without him, I can't exist. And I see a God who loves you and who's moving in this room right now on hearts. We're going to get ready to worship. And we're going to give God our best thankfulness, our best gratitude. We're going to sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Joining with the angels in worship to our majestic king. Our God who is like no one else. Lord. To you, the greatest sacrifice 
is a heart of gratitude, is a heart of thankfulness. To you, there's nothing that we can give that you don't already own. There's nothing that we can offer you that will last. The only thing is our heart. The only thing is our gratitude. And tonight, God, we freely give it to you. As we're just with our eyes closed, I want you to take a moment and reflect not only on what you see, but what your response should be. What should be our response to this transcendent, imminent God, this righteous, set-apart, amazing Jehovah, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim. And whatever it is that God's requiring of you in this moment, I want to encourage you to give it to him quickly. If you're in this room and you say, I, I've never cut covenant with Jesus. I've never accepted his free gift of salvation. I don't know what that means. I want to pray for you right now.